Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. thought about why people act the way they do? Why are some people more difficult to deal with while others are always pleasant? Let's find out together. Welcome to Human Behavior. What a trip. Your host is Dr. Jonathan Brower. Our program combines expert guests with people just like you who have questions or comments. We'll have fun exploring human behavior. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Brower. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Human Behavior. What a trip. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Roger Brooke. He's a professor of psychology and director of the Military Psychological Services at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His formative professional years were in South Africa in the 1980s when he was soldiers from the war in Angola and at the victim of townships. He was a paratrooper and his son served in the U.S. Army in Iraq every year from 2004 through 2009. Roger Brooke runs a network of free consultation services for current service members, veterans, and their loved ones through the university and supervises the training of doctoral students in this work. So, Dr. Roger Brooke, I'll call you Roger. You can call me Jonathan, and we can get on with the show. Hi, Jonathan, and hello, everybody. Hello. I'm sure they're out there enjoying your first few British accents. So um, why don't you start telling us about your views of uh, psychological war, PTSD, and all the other stuff. Um, thank you. I think that uh, the first... I'm often asked by people in the public, and including veterans, about... Uh, whether what we call post-traumatic stress disorder um, or PTSD is a kind of modern indulgence, or they ask, well, why does it seem to be more prevalent now uh, than, say, with World War II veterans? Um, there's sometimes a belief out there that uh, it's a sort of, because uh, young people these days are kind of weak, perhaps, or the decadence in our society or something, or they lack discipline that uh, we have so much talk about it these days, and uh, in other generations, uh, this was not the case. Um, I think it's really a good place to start, because um, those those sort of myths are completely false. Um, I understand that at the end of World War II, there were more psychiatric referrals than all other medical referrals combined. Um, the psychological wounds of war, or what we call PTSD, have been described in our own culture in the Iliad and the Odyssey, which was written over two and a half thousand years ago. 
Um, it is described in detail in ancient Indian texts, also going back over 2,000 years. And uh, it has been named in and described in all cultures around the world. A colleague of mine, by the name of Ed Tick, has counted 80 different names in different languages from around the world for what we'd call PTSD. So I think the first thing I'd like to really get across to folks is that what we have sort of called um, PTSD as a psychiatric issue or condition is really a, a universal human experience. Um, and that the psychological wounds of war are uh, this human universal. What that also means is that if we look at w traditional warrior cultures from the Plains Indians to the Celts or the Greeks or the uh, Zulus and Toza in South Africa, uh, we find that there are certain fundamental themes of uh, healing and certain themes that you find over and over again in the rituals of return and the relationship with the community, and we can talk about that in, in due course. In any event, just to pull these threads together, okay. the first thing I think I'd like to get across is that what we call PTSD is a universal human, um, and uh, we can draw from many different cultures as well as our own current research to uh, help understand it and to help these uh, returning warriors. Yes. Now, I would assume that in some wars, um, well, actually over the millions of years, or thousands of years, um, uh, PTSD as we know it now didn't really exist in the same way it does now. Is, that, is there some difference between how it was 2,000 years ago? That's a really how, good question. And as far yeah. as I can see, it's, uh, it, it does not seem to be different, no. Okay. So the same problems of numbing and rage, a difficulty returning home or feeling at home when at home. Yes. Um, there are problems with nightmares, um, etc. So these are these are clearly described. Um, as I said, these are clearly described in ancient Indian texts going back over two thousand years, as well as in our own, as well as in our own literature. Here's an uh -huh. interesting. Here's an interesting thing that some people might have heard of a wonderful book by Jonathan Shea who is a psychiatrist in community mental health, working with the military in Boston area, he wrote a wonderful book called Odysseus in America, in which he has a look at the story of Odysseus, and he links it to the experience of especially Vietnam veterans, but a bit of veterans here in America now. If you think uh -huh. of the story of Odysseus, it's a story of a hero who came home from the war and took 10 years to... to get home. And during this time, he had done drugs. He had suffered alternately between numbness and rage, betrayed his friends, um, you know, and often behaved like a criminal. And uh, so the story, the story of Odysseus of two and a half thousand years ago is a pretty contemporary story. Yes. So um, let me mention one thing that I've wondered about. Um, in terms of... Um, PTSD, when, uh, when children are young and they have anger towards their parent who has hurt them and they have murderous rage towards the parent they also love, 
So now they're in a bind and they have to uh, push down their feelings and not allow them to be their feelings and their impulses towards the parent. They keep that underground. Meanwhile, there's been a, a, an attachment bond rupture with the parent. And if it doesn't get resolved, then that child ends up having these strong feelings that they're not supposed to be aware of for the rest of their life, but it causes problems. So um, I've read some literature that may or may not be accurate that seems to indicate that for children who uh, have a, a secure attachment with their parents, those children who end up in battle have much less PTSD than uh, children who become adults and they're in battle and war, and th- those people have uh, higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder because they're mixing the two p- parts of their p- their problem, the problem they had with their parent and then who they in the unconscious wanted to kill, but also the enemy they try to kill in the actual war. So I'm wondering if um, there's anything to that that uh, people who end up going into battle who have had secure attachment um, with their parents, if those people end up having f- f- uh, lower amounts or zero amounts of post-traumatic stress disorder as opposed to the children who have had attachment bond ruptures that didn't get repaired, what would you say about all that? That's really very interesting, and uh, I've certainly wondered that myself. Um, clinically, that it, it really makes sense, and I have uh, several comments. First of all, I would have to say that uh, it's difficult to imagine that nobody has tried to do some psychological research yes. on exactly that question, but I don't know of any research which addresses it. Do you, do you have a link on your radio where somebody listening might say, well, I've just done my doctorate on that and this is what I found? <laughs> because that would be a very interesting research question and I don't know the answer. But it certainly yes. clinically makes sense. My next thought, um, yes. may I soldier on? Oh, please do. Please <laughs> my, do. My, ne- my next thought is that uh, I am very cautious about wanting to go in that kind of conceptual direction. Okay. Uh, because it too easily slides into a way of subtly blaming the soldier for a lack of resilience. Uh-huh. It might be more sophisticated it might be more sophisticated psychologically yes. than the popular view of a soldier's weakness. Okay. But it still slides in that direction. Uh-huh. And, and so I have, uh, I have a kind of an ethical concern. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want any veteran to fear that going to a psychologist is going to slide away from uh, his or her experience in the war zone to a discussion of those predisposing developmental issues, yes. as though those are sort of primary and the real issues or where the real work needs to be done, real work in quotes, yes. needs to be done. Um, I thought, I, Can you understand what I'm getting at there? I'm sure you can. Yes, I can. Yeah. Although, of course, as, you know, as therapists, we do need to be alert to those developmental templates 
through which we've come to interpret our later experience. I mean, whatever your theoretical model of development, um, you know, we all understand that, there are, that those early years provide a certain cognitive templates through which we interpret our later experience. Yes. So if, if, for instance, I am afraid of my aggression and I'm always trying to make things better, uh, there's a lot of parental conflict. I'm trying to hold the mari- marriage together. I'm trying not to be angry. I rather pathetically at the age of six and trying to make them tea, to make them happy. And nothing I do seems to work. And there's an awful feeling of culpability. Um, I then join the army and I'm unable to save my friends. I'm unable to save the civilians that were under fire. It can deepen a sense of worthlessness that can be really catastrophic. That's, of course, we, we need to be attuned to that. Yes. Without, uh, without sort of sliding away to blaming the, blaming the victim again. Yes. Okay, that all makes sense. The other part of what, when I was listening to you repose the question, the other thought I had there, which links very directly to a very deep ethic or value with service members, is that they are there to protect and to serve. It's yes. The same for our, it's, of course, the same for our police. Exactly. And this, I agree. This, this sense of protecting and serving is such a deep value that they often try to protect their families when they come home from their experience. Mm-hmm. And, of course, trying to protect the family from the experience ultimately doesn't work. Here, here is something that I think uh, is a truism. And uh, it's not one that people like to hear, but the truism is that the trauma will be passed on to the next generation. If and therefore, things aren't therefore yeah. the, the, the challenge is to try to find a way to pass the trauma on as a narrative, as a story that can be understood and told and even honoured. Yes. Um, I'll tell you what, excuse me, we're coming up for a break. but I'm in the last words. Otherwise, it gets passed on as trauma. Okay, we'll come back in about uh, a minute or a minute and a half and we'll continue with this, okay? I'll be here, I'll be here. All right. Okay. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Legal Shield. Total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip, with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. Back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. This is Jonathan Brower with my wonderful guest, Roger Brook. And before uh, Roger goes back to what he was talking about prior to the break, um, if you want to call in and ask a question, you can call in at uh, uh, 1, then 866-472-5792. Again, 1, then dash 866 then dash 472-5792. So if you want to call in, please feel welcome to do so. Okay, Roger Brooke, back to what we were speaking about before, protecting and serving, and you can take it from there. Um, yes, I was saying that uh, the, the, the trauma of war will be passed on to the next generation, and the challenge is to pass it on as a story that can be told and honored. Rather, otherwise, it will be passed on as trauma. The tragedy of people of the sort of silent type who doesn't want to, to talk and is, who is trying to protect his or her, usually his family, from the trauma that he's been through is that he then becomes really blunted and unable to engage in a deep way, both with joy and sadness and all the other full range of human experience and emotion. Yes. Family, and then his kids grow up feeling this wall between them and their father. The wife uh, feels this wall too, and they, as you know, with children, they will often blame themselves. They think that there's something wrong with them. They they become afraid of him, and so on. And uh, it's just not helpful. I'm. I hope it doesn't feel like an indulgence, but I will say that. I'd like to say that one of the great privileges of my own life was that. My father was a frontline infantry officer in World War II, and um, he was actually, he got a bullet through the head, actually, um, a German bullet through the head. And I knew from the time I was a little boy that this uh, hole in the side of his upper cheek was where the bullet came out, and I sometimes would put my finger in there and we'd talk about the bullet and everything else. Uh-huh. And, and to an extent that I could understand and would not be traumatizing for me, my father was always very matter-of-fact about what happened or about some of the things that he had experienced and done. Obviously, it was to a, a level that was appropriate for a little boy and then as an adolescent. But then later, as an adult, I actually traveled through Italy with him. Mm-hmm. And we visited the cemetery in which his brother and his friends were were killed. We visited the gully in which he was shot and killed. We visited a, a memorial and a farmhouse where he came across uh, a whole village of Italian um, civilians that had been murdered by, in SS atrocities. And he didn't uh, hide this from me. And he was always, to an extent that was appropriate, as I say, age-wise, he was always very open about this. And the result was that I always felt as though I knew my father. 
Um, and when I when I hear that when I hear so many people who say they didn't know their fathers um, because their fathers were damaged by the war or were unable to talk to them, I really think that uh, that they've lost something uh, or they missed out on something that is a is a great treasure. Yes, I agree. The, it's a tragedy to have a parent hide their feelings and then the child is left with uh, a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't yes. have to be dramatic. I mean, it's not to turn, you know, you're not, but, but certainly being able to talk to one's kids and being able to talk to one's wife. It's important. There was a study done a few years ago which looked at, sort of did a symptom checklist of uh, veterans, and uh, then they did the same symptom checklist with their wives. Yes. And uh, they found that they tended to suffer the same symptoms. So if one was having restless sleep, the other one tended to as well. Yes. If the veteran felt numb, so did his wife. If one was having sexual and intimacy difficulties and concerns, then so was the other. And uh, so it went on and on. Um, the experience tends to become a shared experience, and uh, of course, it be- can become really problematic in a marriage if that shared experience can't be put into words. Yes, I quite agree. So uh, I remember when my I have uh, adult children now, but when uh, one of my sons, when he was young, he. Um, was well, was looking at this man's arm and it had a bunch of numbers on it, and my son didn't know what it meant. And he asked the the fellow about it, and the fellow told him the story that he was in a Nazi concentration camp and they had a number on his arm. And uh, my son Matthew, when he heard about this, he got very interested and he had concern for the man, but he also uh, was curious and it was just a wonderful experience for. The man and for my son. Right. Yeah. Yes, in fact, uh, it is a great relief for so many veterans who start to tell their story. It's a great relief to them to realize that, that the story of their friends who were left behind overseas is a story that needs to be honored um, because their memories need to be honored. Um, exactly. It's a story that needs to be passed on to the next generation and not forgotten. One of the one of the the features of the post traumatic stress injury or the psychological wounds of war, which is not talked about enough, is the way in which the persistence of these traumatic memories is is because they are calling to be remembered. Um, yes, we can't forget because we need to remember. And uh, when part of the work of uh, helping veterans is to transform these flashbacks and persistent memories into memories that can be uh, honored to an extent, uh, memories that can be turned into a memorial in a sense uh, for their friends. Um, coming, those sort of, those veterans who hurl themselves back into civilian life drunkenly trying to yes. get rid of their memories, are doing themselves as well as their their friends a, a terrible disservice, and it's doomed to failure. Yes, it is. It's a huge problem. Yeah, it's not going to work. Yes. It's understandable, um, uh, but it's not going to work. There's, a, there's also an enormous amount of grief 
um, yes. with so many veterans, and it's one of the common themes in warrior cultures is is grieving the dead. And until veterans really are, are able to grieve for the dead, uh, uh, let me put it the other this way: grieving for the dead uh, is is really important in starting to feel alive again. And grieving for the dead is a way of honouring them. And as the years go by, of honouring our ancestors and and so on. Yes. So what are the... What, sorry, sorry. Um, well, go, go on. I'm sorry. I'll let you finish. Well, let, me, let, me, let me move into saying something else that I, I thought I... That leads me to say something about, um, about combat experience and uh, yes. grief and, and so on. It, it's that the combat veterans... Combat veterans have a knowledge about the world and the fragility of life and perhaps the fr- fragility of power and our politics and whatever the lessons are, they are different for different veterans. They're quite various. Yes. But there are lessons learned thing about the world which those do not need. And this knowledge is brought back from the war zone. And it needs to be integrated into a life. Um in all traditional warrior cultures, the combat experience marks the warrior forever. It sets him on a different development through the lifespan. So that the young warrior becomes, in the end, an elder warrior, a cultural guardian and a spiritual elder. In all traditional warrior cultures, the path of the warrior is ultimately a spiritual path. It's not just an outer role, and it's certainly not just a job. Uh-huh. So that the return to civilian life is not a return in which a person simply becomes a civilian again. It's a return in which he owns his history and his identity. He owns his mark as a veteran warrior, which, both, which gives him a very special place in that society, because he knows something about the world which others don't know. It's interesting that in traditional warrior cultures, where there's a class of warrior elders, there tends to be less violence within and without. And uh, in our own recent history, when we before we went hurtling off to the Iraq War, it was the old warriors like Generals Powell and Shinseki who were saying, who were urging caution and trying to warn that you're going to unleash forces beyond your control, and so on. And they got brushed aside by a group of people who were not combat veterans. So mm-hmm. the combat veteran's role is a very steadying role in the culture and uh, is an honored place. They have a moral authority that if they urge caution, they can't be accused of cowardice, for instance, because they've earned their stripes. Um, and this very special place is is one that we can draw from in our own in our own society. Yes. So these these warrior veterans could become uh, and should become uh, highly valued and treasured as people who have done extraordinary deeds. And also because they know something, um, <coughs> they know something about good and evil, about the fragility of human life. Yes. About political corruption. They've confronted their own aggression. They know what it is to kill somebody. 
it's one thing to be 18 years old and have a fantasy of going off to get Bin Laden. It's another thing altogether to uh, to look to see the dead yes. around you. I mean, so many of these young fellows are just, you know, go out, grow up in good homes and you know, want to be a good Christian, want to serve their country, and maybe have you know adolescent exuberance about getting Bin Laden or something, and then they're confronted with the with the horror of what's happened. Um, and it's quite traumatic. The part of what is so traumatizing, by the way, is its exhilaration. I mean, it's not all bad. Yes. It can yeah. be. It can be thrilling and exciting, and uh, so sometimes they're rather shattered by by just how exciting yes. it was to kill somebody. Okay. Okay. We're coming up for another break, so we'll be back in about a minute and a half. Okay. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. Legal Shield, total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805 535 5111. That's 805-535-5111. com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip, with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Brower. I'm back with my guest, Roger Brooke. We're talking about uh, war and veterans and uh, and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. But before we get back with uh, Roger Brooke, I'll mention again, if you want to call in and ask some questions or make some comments, then you call in 1-866-472-5792. Okay, Roger. Let's get back to the uh, to the the problem and the issue at hand. We're talking about uh, war and the problems with war, and you were going to talk about um, grief and flashbacks and things like that. During the break, I know this is a little bit sideways, but during the break, I I, I also thought maybe I should just say something 
on traumatic brain injury just because of the numbers. Okay. The, the RAND Corporation estimates that as many as 300,000 returning servicemen have traumatic brain injury. Per um, year? About at the moment, that there are yeah. 300,000 veterans with traumatic brain injury. Okay. Many of them, many of them don't even know it. They'll yeah. just have many of the same problems of, of post-traumatic stress injury. They'll be irritable, suffering from numbness, uh, kind of a proneness to getting ag- aggressive. They'll have poor concentration. They might have a depressed mood. Uh, they might be trying to cope by drinking. And they often look like they are young fellows uh, suffering from uh, PTSD, as we say. But uh, it's worth doing a, an assessment if they have any of those and many of them might have subtle concussions which will cause, which are actually making their PTSD worse. Yes. Okay, I got that out the way. Um, and I've come across quite a number of those in my own practice, so those of us who are alert to that pick it up quite quickly. Yes. Um, yes, I wanted to say maybe just a few things about some of the features. You asked me about that. Um, one of the things is this very common feature of being numb. Um, uh, some veterans describe themselves as having lost their souls or uh, of feeling like a zombie in a world of zombies or that they're walking around in a glass bell mm-hmm. and, and that they feel uh, like a sort of automaton sort of making it up but they don't feel alive at all. Yes. It's really, it's a, it is part of this universal human experience. The Toza of Southern Africa were, uh, were a, a warrior culture. Nelson Mandela was Toza, by the way, for, for those who don't know of the, of the culture. Um, they used to say that the warrior has left his soul on the battlefield. And when he comes back from the battlefield, he is not really alive. And his soul is living there on the, is out there on the battlefield together with the souls of the dead. And before the returning warrior can feel alive again, which is to say not feel numb and cut off, uh, he has to make peace with the dead. And what is really interesting for the Khoza and the Plains Indians and uh, and other cultures is that that often includes making peace with the enemy dead. We know how the Plains Indians, many of us know how the Plains Indians would kill a buffalo, for instance, and then have to take responsibility for the soul of the dead buffalo. Yes. What is less well known is that they used to take responsibility and pray for the souls of the dead enemy too. And it was only for them and for the Khoza it was only by taking responsibility for all the souls of the dead that they could pass on to the next world, that their own souls could return from the battlefield and they could come and feel alive again. Uh-huh. Um, many young veterans do not feel ready for all that and certainly do not, need, do not feel a need to atone for the enemy dead. But it is something that uh, a surprising number of veterans do, um, even young veterans, and sometimes it shows itself in their nightmares where the dead have faces or they see that the dead are really people or that the dead that they've killed are not really dead. And these kinds of nightmares often have within it the seed of recognizing the humanity of the dead, including the enemy dead. It's a tough lesson. Yes. So when you talk about uh, these men being numb and 
feeling like zombies and being automatons. Um, it occurred to me that um, this could also be part of depression. It does. It can, yeah, and depression, of course, is very common. And it's not as, you know, psychiatrists, the medical model says that it's, you know, you've got PTSD and then as a so-called comorbid, in quotes, condition, you have depression. But, of course, depression and substance abuse and so on are very much part of a single picture of the psychological wounds of war, as any of us who work with veterans would know very well. Yes. Numbness is very close to grief. Um, and uh, the way through it is grief. Yeah. Well, well, numbness seems to me the numbness would be a way to avoid experiencing the grief. Yes. And so yes. the the job would be to help the person uh, get to their real feel their their real feelings of grief yes. and not have to mask it with numbness. Yes. Well, That's easier said than done. Daryl Paulson, Daryl Paulson was a Marine who walked the point in Vietnam, and he's written a wonderful memoir in which he describes um, driving actually through the desert from LA to Las Vegas, and, and finally the dam wall burst, and he felt the floods of grief just overwhelmed him. What is so interesting is that he describes there that for the first time in years and years he felt joy. Uh huh. And what, what, what enabled him to have the joy? What did he do? I think joy is, the joy is that for the first time, is, is feeling fully alive. I see. Whatever it is that you're experiencing, even if it is a painful experience. Yes. So I'm alive. curious, um, um, there's, you know, there's a lot of war movies that have been shown on, uh, you know, in, in the movies over the last 40 or 50 years. So for, uh, Warriors who have come back from war, do they tend to like to watch these movies? Do they tend to want to avoid them, or is it sort of a hodgepodge? Um, in my experience, it's a hodgepodge. Some some yeah. like it, uh, some don't. Yeah. Well, veterans can certainly get stuck in yeah. uh, surrounding themselves with other veterans, and that's all they talk to, and... Yeah. Many of them cannot believe that there are civilians who would really like to hear from them and really do want to understand. Um, it's a great gift and a great surprise to so many veterans when they discover themselves talking to a civilian who really doesn't shy away and goes and will really follow them and go there with them. And it's yes. a great bridge back into the civilian world. Yes, I'm sure that's the case. So you also uh, mentioned you were going to talk about uh, the rage that some of these soldiers end up having and the sexual acting out they have? Something like that. Well, I suppose, I suppose the thing that I would say about rage, I mean, on one hand, it's common. It's a way of coping. It's a continuation of what was required in the war zone. I remember one uh, soldier said to me, you know, Doc, I've heard about a fight or flight response. I never, I never have a flight response anymore. I just want to fight. Yes. And, uh, so rage was right at the edge, you know, ready to boil over at any moment. Yes. And so on one hand, that is a, it's a life-saving, it's a life-saving quality, uh, which, which tends to persist for quite a long time after the return home. But I also think that a lot of what is within a veteran's rage is, is, uh, is psychic pain and an experience of what's right. You know, rage, if you find out what are you angry about, rage sort of clings, I think, to the remnants of one's humanity and a sense of what is right. 
It's a, it's a special marker for the experience of betrayal when people feel betrayed by senior officers or by politicians. Um, yes. There's a rage, it seems to be universal, in the face of death and the loss of friends. Um, but it's also a doorway to an inner life. Uh, the rage can be an opening to talk about pain uh, and to start to recover one's sort of moral bearings where you talk about that this was funny and this was sick and this was frightening and that was disgusting and that was hopeful. And by by putting out these sort of markers in the world, you, you're putting out your moral bearings and your aesthetic bearings of what is good or beautiful or just or hopeful. Um, you're sort of setting out the coordinates of a livable world again. And rage can be the access point to, to really establish uh, one's compass and uh, the the development of an inner life. Yes, and from I also point, have something... From that point of view, also, it's a gift. Yes. So um, this whole rage thing, in some ways, can be um, a focal point to start being aware of what's going on along with the rage and underneath the rage. Yeah. It's the start of a conversation. I yes. really want to know what you're mad I, I can see you're mad, and I really want to know what you're mad about. Yes. I, I trust that you're mad about something that is real and worth being mad about. That's my attitude. I'm not going to tell you not to be mad. I'm not going to tell you it's over. I'm not going to give you any platitudes and cliches. I really want to know. <laughs> yes. I think a good starting point. Yes. So uh, you also mentioned that you were going to speak about sexual acting out and all that in the context yeah, um, of... Well, I think maybe I should, I should... One of the things that not many people re- recognize is just how many veterans um, suffer from quite quite uh, prominent uh, sexual inhibition or anxieties. Mm-hmm. Very often, very often there's a fear that there is there's so much guilt and shame that they have done things that are unworthy or unchristian that they that they no longer feel worthy of intimacy or worthy of love or worthy of lovemaking and um, so that there can be quite a, there's too much guilt and shame involved uh, and then that can be you know sometimes people can defend against that by becoming sort of hypersexual or they can yeah. just become sexually really withdrawn. Um, sometimes uh, one of the tragedies of, of sexual violence towards women, uh, and one of the tragedies, of course, of women in war zones is those women who are sexually assaulted by people in their own units. Yes. I think this is my own thought, and I don't have any evidence apart from some anecdotal clinical evidence for this. But my own thought is that part of it's a double tragedy. It's obviously a tragedy towards the the women who have been uh, sexually assaulted. But it is also a tragedy because some of these men who do this are not psychopaths. They're not the sort of people who would ever have done that. And they themselves are shattered by what they have done. And I think that there's a the the sort of the assault on the feminine, whatever the feminine means to them. Is something that gets uh, tragically enacted. Yes, we're coming up to our final break. Uh, and I want and we'll, to say something about guilt. Okay, we'll get back to that in about a minute and a half. Okay. All right. 
A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness. Legal Shield. Total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hello, everybody. This is Jonathan Brower with my guest, Roger Brook, and we're... Uh, in the final stretch of our show, we have about, I don't know, 12 or 13 minutes to go. Who knows what exactly? But, uh, Roger, we were going to talk about, uh, sexual inhibitions and then we we're going to, you were going to talk in about guilt and we'll take okay, it off say, from there. Let me say something about guilt. Um, um, we're often confronted, as you know, with a tremendous amount of guilt. Yes. Um, this can be guilt that very often it's a survivor's guilt that uh, they survived and somebody else did not. Yes. It can be guilt about letting people down. It can also be guilt for real misdeeds or failures, you know, failure to fire or something like that. Uh-huh. But I, I remember recently I was asked by, by a fellow in his, uh, a Vietnam veteran who uh, said that he still feels guilty when he hears that somebody from his unit uh, says was killed in Afghanistan and and uh, all these years later he feels that he should be in Afghanistan and if he was there maybe he could have protected him and he wondered why he felt such guilt. Yes. And I, I was deeply moved by his guilt in a way. I I mean I understand that guilt is not nice. Uh, it can be it can be very painful. But if you listen to the the, the core of his guilt, I think that it's the mark of his identity as a soldier, of a sense of belonging to his unit and those yes. in his unit, even years later, with life-giving devotion. It's uh, His guilt is a mark of his indebtedness to both the living and the dead. Um, I have sometimes said and thought that I think to take away his guilt 
could imagine for a moment what it would be like for him to feel nothing at all, kind of an utter indifference. I think that to take away his guilt would be like an Alzheimer's of the soldier's soul. Yes, I think that's so, well put. Yeah, so our task rather with guilt isn't so much to get rid of it as to affirm the calling within one's guilt by living a life that is worthy of the dead and remembering them with honor. Yes. So, so when um, these soldiers, as they age and as they get older and then, and then have uh, uh, reunions with some of their fellow soldiers, as they, as they age, do they seem to feel more at ease with what took place or they uh, feel more troubled or is it just a person-by-person person those, who, those who have never felt really listened to um, often feel more troubled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've worked sometimes in nursing homes, actually. I've done work in nursing homes where World War II or Korean War veterans have needed to talk about their guilt. Uh, yes. And they've, they've told me things that they've never told anybody in, in all those decades. Yes. Sometimes it feels like it needs to be worked before they die. Yes. Um, it's part of late life integration and uh, so on that Eric Erickson talked about. But there are others who do make peace and, uh, and, do not, and are able to live their guilt in a way that ennobles their lives rather than uh, burdens them. Yes. So um, uh, how are the, the, the soldiers who come back and are in the... Um, in the hospitals for various reasons, uh, and, and they're there for a long time, some of them for many years. Uh, how are they different than the soldiers who come back and still have problems but don't necessarily need to be hospitalized? Um, I don't know that I have a, that anything comes to mind particularly. Okay. Do you want to take that up further? Not really. I don't know what to say about it. I just know that... Uh, for many years when I lived in West Los Angeles and I'd run by this the, the there's this big uh, cemetery and I'd run by the cemetery it was it was just for uh, soldiers you know and there were you know thousands of soldiers under the ground and uh there was this hospital right next right near the 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 um place where all the soldiers were buried and I would run through the compound of the hospital and I'd see these guys, you know, hanging outside the, the building, smoking cigarettes, looking disheveled, and and my heart would ache when I would see them. Yeah. And they seemed so empty, and uh, I was wondering how much help they really get with those kinds of um, hospitalizations. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we let me let me say something encouraging to uh, your listeners. Okay. Um, there has been an enormous amount of work in research in the Veterans Administration hospitals. They they vary somewhat because uh, it's they're not it's not a cookie cutter completely uh, throughout the system. And there are some VAs where they've done wonderful research and they do incredibly good work. PTSD yes. until recently was described as a chronic condition, and one of the things that we're now realizing is that it doesn't have to be a chronic condition at all. Um, Certainly, I don't believe that it does. I've seen, I've yeah. heard Vietnam veterans say that they slept for the first time in 30 years. 
So it's not oh, too late to deal with it, even even you know late in one's life. Yes. I want to move on. I want you asked me during the break about the moral dimensions. Do you want me to say something about that before we have to? Yes, please final? do. Okay. Yes. Um, you know, here's an interesting thing. If the Vietnam, if the in Vietnam, the Vietnamese built a wall like our Vietnam mon- monument in Washington, if they built a wall to the dead with the same density of names, yes. instead of being about 150 yards long, it would be 15 kilometers or nearly 10 miles long. Wow. That's how many dead we left there during the Vietnam yes. War. And yet PTSD is very rare in Vietnam. And it's very interesting to ask why. One of the yes. issues certainly seems to be the Buddhist culture and an incredibly strong sense of local community, where the local community carries the wounds of war rather than an individual. Yes. But the other issue is the moral one. The, the, the Vietnamese were fighting for their homes and their villages against a foreign invader. The, the overwhelming trauma for the Vietnam veteran for those who came back traumatized, was what Peter Marin once called the moral pain um, of fighting a war that they don't think that we should have been there. Um, yes. And it, of it being an unjust war. And that is a moral burden that is a terrible burden to live with. And it means that our political leaders should be very, very clear on, on of the, the moral burden uh, that they might be passing on to veterans where they will carry the moral failures of political leaders for a lifetime. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we have about two minutes till we close. And I wanted to ask you a question. Um, In in the little bio I have on you, it mentions how you were a paratrooper. Yes. So when you were a paratrooper, you were jumping out of an airplane and you were landing on the ground to do battle, right? I did all the training. Um, I'm not a combat veteran myself. Oh, because I was wondering how it is for uh, human beings who are going to jump out of an airplane with a <laughs> with a parachute and then they're going to be on the ground and then all of a sudden they've got to start fighting the enemy. It, to me, it, it sounds like such a uncomfortable, awful experience. It certainly gets your attention, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I don't know what to say about that, um, except it certainly takes a, it takes a certain kind of person. And um, I think the thing is that you are so extremely well-trained. You know, in, in elite units, you are so extremely well-trained that it becomes kind of mechanical. You're just doing what needs to be done and you're not focused at all on what's going on around you. Um, I've spoke to colleagues in my unit who described hearing the rounds going through their canopies above them as they jumped into combat in Angola. And I said, what was it like? And they just, they were aware that the rounds were there and they were just aware. One fellow said, I, I thought that the idiot was shooting too high. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> I so, <laughs> so I, I imagine the, these kind of people are somewhat, uh, uh, some degree, are adrenaline junkies, but they can keep their mind and their wits uh, about them and do the job they have to do. 
It is. Uh, there's a wonderful book by um, uh, Grossman called On Combat, and he's described how there are some, and they're the people who tend to become special forces and SEALs, um, yes. etc., who, who do seem to be able to function uh, competently yes. so yeah. much longer than the normal population. And to some extent, we wonder if that's con- partly constitutional, <laughs> but it's also partly due to training, um, where you are able to stay calm and keep your heartbeat under control. Uh, in, in truly extreme situations. Um, yes. But even even they, uh, in the end, will probably break down um, after months and months and months. I know I've spoken to people who came back after 15 months in the surge in 2006 and seven in, in Iraq, and they said that there wasn't a single person in their company or platoon who was right in their head. They were all oh, really? And And that's because of the trauma of the war or yeah and just the ongoing absolutely never-ending trauma i mean i was talking to people who were in over 250 firefights but but most of them are fine Uh, so it does take time and uh, there is help available and most of them will will do fine and there are lessons learned and they can live good lives so that's the good news yes well i hear the music coming on so i'm i'm assuming we're done for the show I want to thank you for being on the show with me, and uh, I found it very interesting. And I'm going to actually call you back in a few minutes when I get off the air with it. Thank you, thank you. Here, and and we'll, thank, and okay. thank you to your listeners. Thank you to your listeners uh, for listening. Uh, uh, okay. It's really good. Bye bye. All right. Thank you again for listening today. Tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for a trip with America Health and Wellness Channel. Have fun experiencing your human behavior.